after the Marine Corps, I definitely, that was four years, I definitely felt the void of being, a, being an athlete and being a Marine. Uh, that transition was really hard for me. I didn't, I kind of felt like I lost my identity. Uh, I, I very much was um, known as, you know, the fit softball pitcher, very talented pitcher, female Marine, very strong female Marine um, leader. And then all of a sudden I was like on my own figuring it out. <laughs> and I just, because my identity was so wrapped up in my performance in those two areas, sports and softball and then um, as a Marine, it, it just, I felt lost. What's going on? Dr. Teresa Larson here. I am the founder and president of Movement RX, uh, the author of Warrior, a memoir that was published a couple years ago. You are listening to Heads and Tails Podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Salm, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports, health, and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Curiesa Larson, who is the president of Movement RX, host of the Mind New Normal podcast, author of the book Warrior, True Strength Isn't Always What It Looks Like a former Marine Corps engineer officer and combat veteran, uh, physical therapist, mobility wad speaker, and a former Division I All-American softball player. Uh, today, we're going to focus our conversation on uh, transitions uh, from both after sports and other different various careers and possibly injuries. Uh, also, the idea of toughness and what it means to be tough or a warrior, um, and also finding a new normal. So, Dr. Larson, thank you for coming on the podcast today. I was wondering if you could start off by talking about what your transition was like after uh, a very successful softball career. Uh, good question, and thank you, Kevin. I'm excited to be able to connect with you and um, your audience. Uh, the, these invisible wounds, uh, brain injury, and all the comorbidities that come with it are uh, near and dear to my heart. So, um, but to answer your question, the Transition from playing softball, well, it was pretty pretty fast transition because after college, after playing right, 80 games a year, uh, I went straight into the Marine Corps and was a Marine officer. So I didn't really have too much to think about because it was my next physical challenge um, and it kept me very busy. So the Marine Corps ended up becoming kind of like my new sport in a way uh, and a little a little more serious, more stakes involved, of course. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, because there's war involved. And um, I was an engineer, so dealing with a lot of demolition and uh, weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> uh, but I, so I didn't get a chance to really, um, I, I was in a job that kept me really, really active. Uh, I definitely missed softball and that team, small team, travel, uh, competitive nature, but I also got a lot of that in the Marine Corps too, because I had a platoon and we were deploying and that was kind of our big game in a way. It wasn't a game, of course, but I had that, that void was filled for a while. Um, but after the Marine Corps, 
I definitely, that was four years, I definitely felt the void of being, a, being an athlete and being a Marine. Uh, that transition was really hard for me. I didn't, I kind of felt like I lost my identity. Uh, I, I very much was um, known as, you know, the fit softball pitcher, very talented pitcher, female Marine, very strong female Marine um, leader. And then all of a sudden I was like on my own figuring it out. <laughs> and I just, because my identity was so wrapped up in my performance in those two areas, sports and softball. And then um, as a Marine, it, it just, I felt lost. I'll tell you that. So and I felt lost for probably a good year and a half <laughs> before I, kind of started to realize what I wanted to do. Um, don't get me wrong, in that year and a half, I kept myself busy. I went to uh, Italy and played a year of professional softball, actually. And so Italy and so Italy was kind of the popular place when the US Professional League folded. But I'd been out of softball for four years. So I went and played in Italy, got my ass kicked. Um, in the professional league had fun, but also was like, am I going to dedicate my life to this anymore? Am I going to, I need to find a career. Cause I got paid a whopping like seven grand for the whole season, which is half of the year. So that's not a lot of money to live off of. And, uh, I needed to find a career that fit me. So here I am a young, young adult, uh, four years post-college playing softball, but, lost the love for it if that makes sense because i'd been through so much serious sh stuff in the in the marine corps and realized like you know softball i i miss being on a team but this isn't this isn't what i want anymore i don't want to be a softball player um, but who am i that still was the question who am i and it led me down this path of figuring out what i wanted and that path was not easy so, and so that the kind of the end thing was, or what you wanted was kind of the physical therapy, at least at that point. Yeah. So exactly. I ended up finding out, you know, cause I ended up breaking my big toe in Italy. So epic, um, playing soccer of all things, not softball. <laughs> I broke my big toe and went to a sports medicine doctor there. And, you know, I couldn't understand what the hell he was saying. Um, but I appreciated his help when I was out there. And then, but I saw, you know, there was a disconnect between his knowledge and my performance as an athlete, right? Like I wanted to get back to playing. He had no idea, even though he was a sports medicine doctor. It was like, there's the, the language. I mean, I had an interpreter, so he was, I, I was understanding what he was saying, but um, allowed me to understand what he was saying. However, there was just still a disconnect between his knowledge and my need to perform and my want to perform and the knowledge of when I would be back to performing. And then on the strength and conditioning side of things over there, uh, the strength and conditioning coaches, it was like, wow, we're back in the stone age here <laughs> training and disconnect there too on what was good for an athlete, a power athlete like us. How sh should we be training? Um, it was all like slow strength speed type stuff. And I was like, that, that doesn't make sense. But I didn't know enough then to really, I just knew it didn't make sense. And 
I wanted to find a career that kind of balanced out, like bridged the gap between strength and conditioning and medicine. Because being a medical doctor in a hospital did not excite me, but also just being in a gym every day, training athletes one-on-one didn't excite me. So I was like, well, what's going to excite me? Um, And physical therapy by no means was exciting in a traditional clinic, but I ended up realizing over time just from research, I can make, once I get my, my license, I can make what I want of this. I can create my own business. I can, I can do training one-on-one and I can also speak to people and I can work with teams. Like there's so much that I can do with it. So I ended up landing on, okay, I got to do freaking something. Um, physical therapy seems to be the best fit. Uh, and so I went for it. It was like three years of doing prerequisites, applying to PT schools, yada, yada. <laughs> All the fun stuff. That- yeah, that's like no joke, like the amount of work that had to go into just like being able to, yeah, just to start school for PT and then actually become a physical therapist. So I commend you for you. for that. Uh, that's, 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 that's impressive. You know what it, what it was, though? Because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, I didn't know like um, I was an engineer in the Marine Corps and I didn't want to be an engineer in the civilian world. And so I knew the path was long. I started at the age of 28 going and doing my prereqs because I already had my bachelor's in political science. Super helpful with uh, becoming a PT, not really. And I had to do a lot of things over. But it was my time to heal too and my time to like have fun for once. Because I'll have to say like in college, I did ROTC and a varsity sport. That's a lot to do in college. I was going nonstop, the Marine Corps nonstop for deployment. So finally, for the first time, you know, I had three years of a little bit of breathing room to take a couple class, two to three classes a semester. Uh, I worked part-time. I owned my own pitching, fast pitch business. So I got paid a little bit of money, but I could, I had money from the GI Bill to like breathe a little and, and embrace this new normal. <laughs> I was in and actually make friends that were different than the Marine Corps and softball, had nothing to do with that world, those worlds and explore. Um, I lived in Long Beach and that's when I met my husband actually. So it was just a, it was a special time. Don't get me wrong, a very hard time because there was a lot of questioning, like what the heck am I doing? Even while I was doing my prereqs, even when I was in PT school, I always questioned like, am I on the right path? I don't know. But I just kept going because I needed to finish, I needed to accomplish my mission of getting my degree. Right. And just after learning a little bit more about your story just there, it's obvious that you're not afraid to work. No. <laughs> so, um, yeah, between school and ROTC, so, and, and the sport. But I guess one of my questions was, is like, I didn't realize that you were in ROTC while you were in college. So one of my questions earlier that I didn't get get to yet was you know what went into your decision to join the marine corps but it sounds like it's something that you've had in mind for a while yeah so i came i come from a pretty patriotic family i mean i grew up with a single father so my mother passed when i was young my dad was in the army um during vietnam and my brothers both of them were marines one went as a marine he was a marine aviator and the other was enlisted 
um, he did Force Recon and it was, uh, so the decision, so I got recruited by various schools to play softball. Um, but I always looked up to my brothers so much and they were boy scouts. And I thought girl scouts were kind of lame, to be honest, <laughs> so, like wanted to be the boy scout and of course didn't become a boy scout, but did all the things they did. And my brother's, I literally worshiped them and the fact that they went in the Marine Corps I was like, I want to go in the Marine Corps too. So when I was getting recruited for college, uh, West Point recruited me. Annapolis doesn't have a softball team, a varsity softball team. So that wasn't really an option, but I visited West Point uh, and hated it. So I was like, I can, I'm not doing an academy. There's no way. <laughs> so it was like a really big jump from sheltered home Seattle to military academy there needed to be some kind of transition for me. But I ended up deciding um, to go to Villanova because they had a great ROTC program. I got um, a really good scholarship for softball and the military also covered part of my tuition. So ultimately a full ride from both of those things. And I did not know what kind of commitment I was in for, let alone like varsity sport is just like a full-time job anyway. But on top of that ROTC, um, yeah, it, it drove me, it, it was hard, uh, but I'm glad I would, I don't, I would never take it back. It's just, could I have made uh, better health decisions while I was at college? For sure, <laughs> in terms of self-care, but it was, um, it set me up for success, the stress I was going to be under when I was a Marine officer, so that I, that I'm thankful for. What do you mean in, uh, about the, you wish you took better care of your health while you were in school? So in school, I, I had a lot of disordered eating. Just, um, I think there's a spectrum. I mean, everyone's relationship with food is different, but mine was, I was a fitness competitor. Um, I was into competing and looking really good and leaning out. And so I was always like on some diet or training regiment. And um, on top of that, I was training for the Marine Corps as well as varsity softball. It was just like, I put myself under a lot of stress because I thought more was better. Didn't sleep, didn't value sleep. So I would sleep four or five hours a night. Um, still managed to party some, but not not a ton because I, I had a lot of responsibilities. So just the knowledge of what sleep can do for your brain, right? What what um, kind of less is more when it comes to training, like moving well. I had no idea about those things. And nor was I taught them by coaches or my strength, coach, strength and conditioning coaches. And that's, you know, part of the education. There's still a lot of education that needs to be had out there in the fitness industry and training athletes. But um, I didn't know any better. Yeah, that's only now starting to become a thing, I feel like. Yeah, and I also, you know, as a young athlete, um, I didn't really know how to cope with the stresses that I was under. So academically, Villanova is a competitive school, and academics aren't just didn't come easy to me. So I really I had a hard time in school, like staying awake for one, but just managing the load with the other two things. So the but the the way I coped was through controlling my food and exercise. So that ended up over time actually becoming a disorder for me. 
And, and how did you ultimately overcome that, that disorder? So, yeah, that goes into a deep story here. I'll spare along the long, a lot of details, but ultimately what happened was, well, I, I, and I'm sure everyone listening can relate to, you know, looking back maybe on their college or high school years or playing sports and like, wow, you only, the amount of sleep you got and the training you did, you functioned at like 60 or 70% of what you probably could have. You know, you can always look back and change things, but it's, that's not really necessary. What's necessary is learning from the, from your experience and being, being present and making those changes right now in your life. So for me, the disordered eating turned into bulimia uh, for me and turned into bulimia the first year I was a platoon commander in the Marine Corps. So that disordered eating, the, that's how I coped with the stressors in my life. It, the food was my drug of choice, right? It could have been some people it's alcohol, some people it's actual drugs, some people it's other things, but for me it was food. And so I would limit and restrict food, etc. And it became a problem for me more after hours of work. And uh, I also would abuse exercise too. So sometimes spend up to three hours after like a 10 hour day working in the gym. It's completely unnecessary. I wasn't training. I was training, you know, for deployment, but three hours is not necessary, especially if you're efficient. And let alone I wasn't, I was nutrient deprived. So yeah, my, 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 my poor habits of self-care and my way of coping with the stressors in my life and the responsibilities I had, I uh, turned into these bigger demons and, um, kind of, and actually I had bulimia most of my Marine Corps career and ended up when I was in Iraq, uh, of course, the most stressful experience in my life you know, looking on the outside, look fine, look the part, act the part, but on the inside was really struggling with coping with what I was seeing and doing. Um, yet I was doing stuff that was super motivating and what I was in combat before women were even allowed in combat. So it was really awesome, intense stuff that I signed up for, but yet I had this demon inside of me um, that just like I didn't have control over anymore and ended up um, volunteering. So after a night mission, uh, three months in, I, I asked for help. I realized I, I can't do this alone anymore. I can't keep this a secret. I knew that if I did speak up about having this disorder, I would be, be not necessarily sent home, but my career would soon there end. Um, addiction is addiction. So the Marine Corps, the military knows what to do with alcoholism, but they don't know what to do with other things. They're getting better now. Um, I was in 10 years ago, but at the time I was deployed in a war zone. And um, so what happened was I asked for help. They wanted to send me to a, another base, but I was a platoon commander. So I wasn't, I didn't sign up to go do desk work, right, at a, another base away from my men and women that I work with. If I need help, I should go get it, see a specialist. So I had to really stick up for myself to get to see, quote unquote, an eating disorder specialist, even though I didn't want to admit I had an eating disorder. But I knew that binging and purging, which might be a trigger for some people. So binging and purging 
four to five times a day in 120 degree weather is not healthy. And if I feel messed up and I can't focus, then I'm going to mess someone else up potentially or hurt someone. Because I don't sit behind a desk. I'm out blowing stuff up, finding landmines, uh, working with female insurgents, like not working with them, but <laughs> um, working with the Delta Force and the SEALs and bringing these women that were insurgents back to their um, villages. We never kept women in captivity. It was mostly men. Um, anyway, the I ended up asking for help and having to really stick up for myself to get home, go home and get help. But I knew sadly that my career would be over. And uh, so that's when the whole, now I got to figure out my life and who I am started. Because this demon was a great example of something that manifested from just going really hard and not doing, not taking the time to cope and do the self-care that was needed or just identify, like be on the path of like self reflection and getting to know myself along the way. I just charge hard forward without thinking and just go, go, go without really um, taking the time to get to know myself and what I wanted. And this whole process of asking for help did not make my path thereafter easy, but it did uh, shed light on, okay, you know, the military life, it's, it's going to be over and I need to find a new, new normal for me. And that new normal has to be a healthier normal than what I'm in now, because now I live in like a black hole personally and professionally people didn't know what was wrong with me. Like they were like, you look fine. You look healthy. You seem healthy. Uh, but that's not what was going on inside. So that path led me to where I am now, 10 years later. <laughs> yeah, and like you said, like you looked fine on the outside. A lot of the people listening to this uh, might be dealing with concussions or brain injuries. Yeah. And a lot of the time it's the same kind of feeling for, for them as well. Um, yeah. I was most impressed with that part of the story in your ability to stick up for yourself, um, mo mostly because, you know, when we were growing up, you know, kind of self-reflection and self-care were frowned upon things. It's always like sacrifice your body for the team, do, you know, do all this stuff. So especially in the environment that you were in, to me, sticking up for yourself and, you know, seeking out the help that you needed uh, is like, in my opinion, the definition of what toughness is. Yes. And it is the definition of, for me, like the ownership of health. That's what a warrior is, is someone who, who takes, owns their health and sticks up for themselves. And even against themselves, right? Because we can, we can be self-bullies. Like we can bully ourselves and rationalize our life away, really. And it's, you, you need to stand up to that. Like I, I think that our minds are monkey minds. We need to train them. And we, you know, as we roll this thing out, like my whole self-healing practice comes with physical action, like taking physical action. Can you dive a little deeper into that? That's an interesting uh, point you made in terms of like your, you can be your own bully. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about um, sometimes we're our own worst critics. One of the things that I do whenever I speak in front of a group is we do an exercise where it involves some kind of movement and we're complimenting someone else in front of us. Someone we don't even know, maybe it's someone we know. And then the task is to compliment yourself in front of that person. And it's really hard for people to compliment themselves. 
you just hear like the room kind of not go silent, but people are talking slower and they're kind of laughing more and not like being a lot more shy about it. So point being is it's just harder for people to be nice to themselves versus others. And if you really take a look and do some self-reflection on um, how you talk to yourself, is it kind? Like if you go through a hard situation and you're like, I'm an idiot or, you know, a number of, you tell yourself a number of things. Maybe you don't even know you're telling yourself that. I would just challenge people to start taking inventory of how they are talking to themselves because I'm the first to admit I'm my own worst critic. And so I'm constantly keeping myself in check. And that's part of the pattern interrupt for me is I am, I pay attention and I journal those episodes where I want to, I want to react poorly against myself. Like you should have done this. You should have done that based on a memory or a situation and reframe it in my journal written physically written versus just in my head and say, well, what was the growth in that? We all make mistakes. We all do. None of us are going to do things perfectly, but what's the growth in that response I had? What can I learn from it versus saying belittling yourself and telling yourself you're worthless or an idiot does that make sense no it makes a ton of sense and i relate to that as well because like yourself i i'm my own worst critic critic in you know many ways also like my self-talk is terrible and yeah so it's a it's you know to to go to that next level of of self-reflection and knowing yourself start to journal like literally grab a journal, notebook, and identify the situation that perhaps you were your, your own worst critic today. And write down that situation and write down what you would normally say and then how you could look at the growth in that situation. And then say that out loud to yourself. Like this is this situation with um you know it could be a business partner it could be a friend like man i should have said told my friend um that i did not agree with or that that did that made me feel uncomfortable or uh why didn't i say that i'm such a so such an idiot or i'm so passive well you can tell yourself that's maybe not the right time maybe a better way to communicate to your friend is through a letter or um you know, calling them in a different, take, making, taking them out to coffee and like face to face having a conversation, right? Just always coin that situation as a growth. It doesn't have to be positive, just like what's the growth in it. Right. So it's really helpful. And it's just, that's kind of like cognitive behavioral therapy right there. You're, you're, you're identifying your poor reactions where you, you can even go into like where they come from. Like, why the heck do you do that? Somewhere down the line, you you failed and got reprimanded and felt really crappy about it and held that in, you know, and so who cares? Like, let that go, but write it out. Like, the key to letting those things go is physically put it on paper and rewrite that story in a growth mindset. Like, if that abuse didn't happen growing up or if that didn't happen, I would not be where I am today. And I'm much more aware of this poor thinking because this happened. 
And I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to be like that. Um, I want to be my own hero. And whatever whatever it is that helps you. But growth mindset. That's the key. But it like doesn't just happen from just saying it in your mind. Like you have to, I believe, especially uh, we are, you know, we, our brains, our brains control everything. Um, and we need to train our minds through physical action. So like the act of writing, the act of changing the channel, right? The act of changing the channel meaning like, okay, I'm feeling pretty down. I'm going to go take a walk outside. You change the channel. Uh, it's gonna re. It's gonna help you like identify with more positive thinking um, when you choose to get out of that spiraling downset mind, downward mindset. Uh, th- that's great advice. I'm definitely gonna implement. Uh, you know that journaling aspect when I feel like I'm my self talk is is poor, and it's also interesting when you said that you should want to like feel like your own hero. And when I think back, it's like, I feel like there were times in my life where like, I did feel like that, not in like a cocky way, but just like, you're proud of yourself. And like, you thought you're doing like on the right path. And I feel like I've gotten away from that recently that I don't, I don't think of myself in the same light anymore, but I remember how it felt. Well, that's a good, I mean, I think the key is, is that you remember how it felt and you can get back there. And you can get back there was just just right. a shift in the way you think. So there are days when I definitely don't feel like that. Um, but I remember also how it felt to feel that way. And it's an easy, it's, all it is is a mindset shift. Um, what, what, how being your own hero means full ownership of your life. That includes your thoughts. That includes your actions. So where can you show more kindness to just your significant other or your loved ones or yourself today? Um, that can start with just the personal messages you tell yourself. Then that can start with like doing something physical, like flowers, making something, whatever it is. Um, yeah, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be much. It's just like doing things that you would be proud of making decisions that you would be proud of, like standing up to your fears. I feel like I am, I could be the most fearful person. I know I'm not the most fearful person in the world. Like there's a spectrum, but there's a lot of things I'm scared of. I'll be honest. And I just could easily go down this rabbit hole of no, you know, no, I'm, I'm not good enough, but I refuse anymore to listen to that. It's like old tapes. I used to tell myself and just through doing, being, doing taking physical action um, of just facing my fear of having that really hard conversation with, with a business partner or having that really hard conversation with a family member that, you know, you think of the using I statements and all of the ways to communicate effectively. It's still not easy when you confront fear or even like, oh man, I've always wanted to do that trip or I've always wanted to work in that industry, but I just don't. It's never the right time. Well, get, well, guess what? It's never the right time ever. You just start diving in, learning, you know, face that fear of waiting, 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 because sooner or later life's going to be over. And you actually never know when life's going to be over. This is very true. And I think it's also good for the audience to hear you say that you're you're still afraid of things. Like, you know, when I hear heard you say that, I'm like, I don't, after 
everything that she's accomplished and gone through, you know, the fact that she still wakes up some days and is fearful of certain situations or whatever, you know, that just shows that like when you have your own fear or like speaking about myself or whoever's listening, you know, it's normal. It is completely normal. It's just, what are you doing with that fear? Is it debilitating you or is it, is it fuel? And you know, it's fuel for me. I know every time I do it, it's uncomfortable as hell, but I feel better. And it could be simply telling someone you're not doing your effing job. So figure it out. Like I need this, this, and this. And in a manner that is, is stern, and um you know necessary not always am i going to have that tone but there are sometimes i've had to and it sucks because these people work you know they worked for me and work for me and it's like okay what's this going to do to them but in the end they end up respecting you more because you're you're having authority but you're doing it in a way that's tactful that's just an example it's like it's not easy having hard conversations but guess what in life you're going to have to if you get, if you're going to have, if you want to get what you want and if you don't want to be, be a pushover, uh, it's very, I mean, for me, it's easy. I'm very kind. I'm sometimes soft-spoken. Um, I feel like sometimes I can be like, I feel more passive about things and, um, just being able to stand up for myself in situations that warrant it make me feel like my own hero. Like, okay, I don't need anyone else to hold my hand. I can do this. Right. Yeah. And that's, I think the key is like you always say is like, there's an action piece of it to, to, yeah. to all of those, those things when you, when you have those feelings. Um, let's dive into your book a little bit and you know, what made you want to write uh, the book warrior, the uh, truth or true strength isn't always what it looks yes. like. Yes. So very fitting for this audience too. Uh, and for everyone, because in, especially if you're athletes, I find the biggest muscle I strengthen is between my ears now. It's, uh, it's more important to me. The mental fitness is more important to me than the physical. They go hand in hand, but I wake up every day thinking about training because it's from my mind. And my body benefits, but it's really from my mind. Uh, so I wrote Warrior because I knew that the story of, I knew my story was that I wasn't alone in it. And there must be other people that are struggling in silence that just don't feel like they can speak up or they feel alone. And whether it's someone struggling with an eating disorder or someone struggling with perfectionism, someone in the military struggling with any kind of addiction, uh, you name it. It's, I wanted it to be a very real, raw story of a young woman um, who learning as she goes how to be a leader, but how to lead herself first and failing big time at it initially and having all of these accolades and accomplishments on the outside, but on the inside was at war with herself and not painting a pretty picture of it, like, but the real picture of it and showing the real and raw steps of, what it took for myself and my family to heal from it. And ultimately there's no, I've arrived, you know, either it's like, Oh no, I'm all healed up. Like this is a daily commitment to self-care. So I share in the book, some things I learned about self-care 
and that I continue to do to this day. And they've morphed into different things now, but the whole premise is the same. So that's why I wrote it. And I had a ghostwriter, which was really helpful. What's a ghostwriter? Yeah, a ghostwriter is someone who he he basically interviewed me and we wrote the book together. So he's a he's a published author himself. He's done many books. Uh, and his name is Alan Eisenstock. And he he believed he heard me speak at a conference about my story and wanted to write it with me. So what he would do is he'd write a chapter. I would add to it. We'd edit it together and then move forward. But it all started with um, interviews like this, like kind of like podcasts where he would interview me, it would be transcribed, and then we'd edit those transcriptions. Yeah, really cool. I'm, I'm curious because I'm interested in trying to write my own book as well. So I'm just curious of the pro- different processes that are out there. Happy to help. No, thanks. <clears throat> and I'll obviously uh, have your book uh, linked up in the show notes for this episode for the listeners uh, so they can uh, get a copy for themselves. And I know you also work with adaptive athletes, and we actually both know uh, Chianti's story was my episode 13 guest like three or four years yes. ago. So, uh, small world. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, you know, how you started working with adaptive athletes and what they've kind of taught you about uh, what it means to be a warrior and uh, to be tough. Yes. So, Chianti does a lot of the videoing for us now, which is awesome. Some of the episodes we've done for Mighty Normal have been in person because I, I wanted to do a training session with them, a workout of some kind, or have them show me one of their sports. And so Chianti's been awesome to film. Uh, but yeah, so Chianti was a Marine too. I started working with him and adaptive athletes right when I got out of PT school. There was a CrossFit gym that had a warrior class that I started to volunteer at. And this warrior class was, um, you know, athletes that were at C5 at Balboa Hospital learning how to use their legs and and suffering with mild traumatic brain injury didn't really work with any moderate to severe it was mostly concussion which is mild traumatic brain injuries uh, severe concussions and those with amputations um, and all the things that go with that so we no real spinal cord injury there at that gym but what happened was that class kind of morphed and led to another gym, went to another gym, and uh, really loved it. And I realized, like, okay, I'd rather coach adaptive athletes than than regular athletes because it just was more fulfilling for me. I felt like I need a challenge all the time, and I really like applying, you know, these athletes that have are adaptive athletes, and we're all adaptive on a spectrum, right? It's those with severe injuries, like the traumatic brain injuries, the spinal cord, the amputations, and all the comorbidities that go with that, that you've had to adapt more, right, to, to be able to do the things you do um, and have the quality of life you want. Like, you, you just have to. And there's a choice that comes with that, though. And I, like a choice of, I want to seek out the help uh, beyond rehab to figure out what's next, because that's really the, the question that comes up a lot is, well, what's next after a year of rehab or however much rehab you went through, vestibular, uh, neuro rehab, right? Orthopedic rehab, like it ends. So what's next versus jumping right into a sport, 
which is pretty common, right? There's a lot of nonprofits that are like, oh, adaptive skiing, adaptive surfing. But what about like getting strong for life and for your sport? And that's what strength and conditioning is for. It's like the premise and the baseline. It gives you the baseline strength um, to to live a quality of life uh, and also perform better in your sport and stay away from further injuries, orthopedic injuries. And so I I found working with this group was awesome, and I just decided I'm going to just start my own. I my office was at a gym downtown. And um, I just decided to start my own adaptive class, and it's grown into three locations now. We have four coaches here in San Diego that uh, coach at these various locations, and it's been awesome. Like we we basically we run three classes a week, um, and we've got those who have missing limbs and wheelchairs, some with traumatic brain injuries. Uh, I I coach once a week, so I don't get a coach all three days just because of my schedule. Uh, but one of the things I did do, um, thanks to CrossFit, because CrossFit, right around the time I launched my book, came to me and asked me to start an adaptive course for them. And I, while I thought that was a great idea, I, I did develop a course. Uh, it just, because around the time of my book, I was actually going to have a baby, too, there's so much happening in my life. It just didn't feel like the right fit for me. Uh, traveling around and not knowing um, return on investment of time plus with a new baby. I didn't even know what it was like to be a mom yet. I mean, it was just, it was, it was a hard time. And I realized like running around the country teaching courses isn't what I want to do. So I made one online. I created one online and I put it on the mobility wide platform and you can access it on my website too. But it basically uh, was really awesome to create because it covers someone who has these injuries. So first of all, a diagnosis is a diagnosis. What we want to know is, and what an athlete and a coach needs to know is what does normal movement, what should normal optimal movement look like? No matter who you are, no one moves perfectly, but what, what should the spine be doing? What should the shoulders and hips be doing? All that stuff. And then from there, you can identify what abnormal movement looks like and start to, we have, a, there's a task. That was a, that was a stool, by the way, standing. <laughs> Not fall backwards, but. <laughs> You're good. Getting excited here about this course. Uh, it was really fun to make, but the uh, premise of it is like, okay, there's, you know, if you're in a wheelchair, squatting, hinging, pushing, pulling, carrying is going to look a little bit different, but we want to be, still be able to accomplish those tasks. So how do we accomplish those tasks uh, if you're in a wheelchair? Like if you have a missing limb, lower extremity or upper extremity, how are you going to do a pull-up or a squat? It's going to look a little bit different. Uh, what about a brain injury? Right? There's a stability issue, a global stability requirement that needs to be met with anyone with a brain injury. So we teach the layering options of how to perform a movement with more confidence and more stability. Um, and we do that in a progressive manner, and, and that's also one of the modules in the course. So it doesn't matter your diagnosis, like what, where in the brain, um, where in the spinal cord. Uh, yes, higher cervical, it's going to be tough to do a lot of movements. That's cervical spine. But we, um, 
we want to look at the movement dysfunction and through teaching ways to identify where your movement dysfunction is right away like just testing things like can someone in a wheelchair do a dip right doing a dip is a very functional movement because you're raising and lowering the hips and it will help you transfer from surface to surface and it also parallels as a squat because right a squat is raising and lowering the pelvis um so you know we're we're creative with this the content and the ways we coach in class it's all related to the stuff we coach in class but but we don't like focus so much on the problems as the what they what works for the athlete and what are their goals so you know and and we do it through trial and error too and just like following principles of movement and with a brain injury there's again the 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 progressions we take are decreasing the stability requirements initially and adding it in slowly. So like, for example, instead of air squatting without any load, we have them counterbalance with a weight or holding onto the rig, especially if they're feeling off balance. Typically, posterior excursion is going to be harder for many people to include someone with a brain injury. So we, we just manage uh, movement because we want ultimately people to be as efficient as possible and not burn so much energy in a workout where they're exhausted the rest of the day, right? And that's where with a brain injury, like you have to decrease the stability requirements and then slowly add them in as you habituate and get used to it and adapt. Habituation is kind of another form of adaptation, another term. Right, and and this is in regard to your Movement RX company, correct? Yeah, so we created a course. Okay. And we put it on the, like we have it on the mobility-wide platform. I can... Yeah, I'll... I'll I'll link it up. I can find it. Cool. Uh, no, it's good. And I think it also kind of – you were talking about like how the whole more isn't always better thing, again, especially when it comes to brain injuries. Yeah, it isn't because you want to think about like like less is better and more quality and with tempo. And, again, thinking of your stability requirements, are you someone that feels off balance a lot? Do you get migraines? Um, do you have any kind of vestibular dysfunction or visual disturbances? You'll probably know from the rehab you've done or just from daily life feeling like, oh, I always veer to one side or I always feel like I don't have confidence with this movement. It's probably because you feel a little off balance and you don't have the equilibrium. So the key is, is to trick the nervous system into feeling confident by adding this external load somewhere. Okay. Or it could be a band it could be a weight it could be a rig and oh by the way like it doesn't have to be in a standing position right you can do things laying prone face up or face down or on your side and get a similar stimulus to said movement such as let's say a squat squat maybe just isn't happening right in so maybe you do a hip lift like glute bridges or sideline hip lifts or you know, you do a squat and prone, like in a, in a like a crawl position. Like there's so many ways to stimulate the nervous system in ways that accomplish the task. But ultimately, it's preparing you for that upright squat movement, which is a very functional movement for life. Like you're going to have to squat to the toilet. You're going to have to squat to a chair. So ultimately, we want to train you in a way that doesn't freaking exhaust your nervous system, but gets you prepared for life over time. Yeah, thanks for the explanation. Um, 
I guess with the I'm I'm always curious about this like nervous system taxing the nervous system like it's almost like it has its own energy system and you don't it's hard to kind of gauge its fuel source or like when the, your fuel's running low. Um, well, so that's a good so what you want to just think about the nervous system central nervous system is brain and spinal cord okay and that that is the control center for everything for everything so obviously brain injury it's um wherever the wherever it is injured and in wherever you're injured in the brain like can affect a number of different things everyone's going to be different every brain injury is going to be different like every spinal cord injury which is central nervous system right peripheral nervous system is like um the nerves that come out of your neck and feed into the arms like those that's peripheral or the nerves that come out of your pelvis called the sacral lumbosacral plexus that go into your legs like the sciatic nerve is the peripheral nerve spinal cord and brain they they affect the way you um, experience your environment your proprioception the communication between body and brain and so you know doing things like things that tax the spine if you think of a movement that really taxes the spine like a deadlift right? we all can imagine a deadlift like picking up a really heavy weight from the ground up to your hips like that's that's going to be taxing on your spine it's going to force every muscle in your spine to work really hard so it's going to tax it and so you might feel extra tired after that movement does that make sense yeah or like someone who is um, really weak on their right side because above the medulla oblongata, they had a brain injury on their left side of their brain. Okay. So uh, they now doing a squat is going to tax that right side faster than the left. So now they have to think about, okay, now that they're, they're tired and feeling weaker, and fatigued from the workout, which is okay, they have to know that they need adequate recovery time before they train again that hard. So that's the nervous system. It's like you just really taxed that weaker side. Um, the left side feels fine, but the right side is definitely more sore and more fatigued. So you want to give it its adequate recovery time. It's just like anybody else who, no, no brain injury, just did a hard workout, um, squats, deadlifts, whatever, pressing, pulling, and they're really fatigued. Well, that's nervous system fatigue. Like you need to give yourself a rest until you feel like the rest includes good sleep. Right? Are you sleeping seven to eight hours? Are you eating well? Are you getting enough nutrients? What are your relationships like? That'll all determine your recovery. Maybe the next day you can go and train again because you feel rested and you don't feel that fatigue anymore. But maybe if you're not used to getting good sleep or good eat, eating and you're really weak on your right side because you have a brain injury or you feel off balance all the time and you're just like that workout that everyone was doing with barbells on your back just completely exhausted you. Well, if you're really exhausted the next day the same way, like reconsider training that hard that day. Give yourself a little bit more rest. Do active recovery like going outside and walking. But that, that, that bot, like people have to be I, and honestly, my adaptive athletes are the ones that are more in tune with their body than the average person, like because they've had these injuries. And so, you know, like you feel like, wow, I'm super fatigued right now. I need to give myself adequate recovery time before I train again. Um, 
those are things that most people don't, they don't listen to. And it's just like, oh, no, no, I got to go work out again tomorrow. I got to work out again tomorrow. Well, you're not going to be able, you're not going to be that effective if you do that. If you don't give yourself adequate recovery time. Um, does that make sense? It makes 100% sense. And now that I think about it, I got big into CrossFit uh, once I, when I was done with playing football, it was kind of like my new outlet of my new physical outlet. Um, but when I think back and I ended up like hurting my knee from like just overdoing it from exactly what you said, I would work out every single day, you know, and not really pay attention to how I felt. And only now after my knee surgery that I've now kind of toned it back on the types of workouts, the loads, the intensity, the volume. Now I can actually feel like, all right, I feel good this day versus when I don't feel good another day and I need to like take a break, but it's taken me a long time to get that feel for it. But, um, yeah, it's just being in tune with your body and knowing, you know, like giving, giving yourself the adequate recovery time it needs. So like me coming off having a baby, I could, I used to do 10 pull-ups in a row, could not do one. Like it was just freaking lost the connection of lower half to upper half just from, you know, having a child. So was able to uh, eventually, I got back on the pull-up bar, but it took me a couple days of recovery in between. Like I could do pull-ups one day and then the next day I'd jump on the bar and I couldn't pull myself up. I wasn't recovered enough. Right. My muscles were really fatigued. It wasn't used to being under that kind of stress for months because by the end, like the last trimester, there's no way I was lifting my body over the bar. It was just too much. Um, so that was, I had to give myself a lot more time in between training to build back up to that 10 reps that I was at before. And you know what? It took me a lot longer than it normally did, but that's my new normal, right? I'm not, I, I actually, I like being able to do 10 strict pull-ups, um, but it was a long process of getting there versus before child. It was like, oh, if I, if I couldn't get 10, it would just take me a month of training and I'd get it back. But that's just the space I'm in and that's okay. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And while we're kind of on the topic of my new normal, I'd like to talk about your podcast. And I, I heard you early on um, in the interview uh, mention when you lost – uh, softball and uh, the Marines in your life, you you missed that opportunity, I guess, to like kind of prove yourself through performance. I, I don't know if I inferred that incorrectly or yeah, not, but that's a good interpretation of it. Yeah, and then later on in the interview, you you mentioned that um, the mental uh, mental strength is more important to you now, or holds a higher priority. Yeah. So. I was wondering if you could tell us about your My New Normal podcast and how you kind of help uh, athletes uh, cope mentally and emotionally. Yes. So the My New Normal was built off of, I wanted to serve the adaptive population <clears throat> um, more than just offering the classes and the course. And I, cause I just felt like their stories are so compelling and the rest of America, cause I work I bring movement programs into corporate America. Like for Movement RX, I work with companies and I bring in our desk programs. I make people, I make desk jockeys out of corporate America. <laughs> Woo. Um, so it actually is really fun, but a lot of America is disabled and disabled by me, by means that 
Disability meaning can't and won't do something. Adaptive is someone who is willing to do what it takes to live an optimal life despite what's going on with them or their deck of cards they've been dealt. And so I wanted to be able to share these stories. And I want, I initially, the podcast was called Adapt. And then I decided, you know, I want it to be more universal to, uh, nobody really knows what adapt, like adaptive athlete isn't like a common term being thrown around. It's in the fitness world, people understand it, but outside of that, no. So I felt like in my life, I've met, you know, people who are, they're currently have terminal cancer or a mom who's really struggling or, uh, you know, learn how to really take on the role of being a mother and running a business or a business owner who's really been through like tons of failures and come out on top or these athletes who've, you know, defied all the odds and gone through nightmare type experiences, but chosen to make the best of their life and live a life actually more and happier and uh, with more meaning than that what they had before. And I was like, I got to put this, I got to tell these stories and I want to help tell these stories. So that's what the podcast is about. And what I do work to infuse and get out of the, the guests and they all know this is like, just what are the mental health comorbidities that have come up for them? Comorbidities meaning other things, challenges that other dysfunctions that have come up, especially mentally, and all of them share like ways they've overcome some of the anxiety and depression, um, some of the addiction that they came across uh, while suffering, early on stages of suffering with their injury and not really knowing what was next, but the, how they overcame that. And a lot of them overcame that through taking physical action, such as finding a tribe, you know, sweat tribe, like a community like a CrossFit community or Spartan racing or whatever it is. Some of them dance. Um, and I think that was really powerful. And for me, when I look back at my health, my healing over time, it was really that it wasn't the talk therapy or really the outpatient therapy that helped me get over my eating disorder. It was the tribe I finally found. Right? I was missing that tribe after softball and the Marine Corps. And I had to find a new tribe. But I actually just ended up creating my own tribe in Movement RX in the CrossFit community. And now with each company I work with, it's its own little tribe. But the tribe that I'm closest with is the adaptive community. And so by creating that tribe, one, we all sweat together, we train together, we share stories. Um, and it's been really healthy and it's everyone to the T has felt like the functional fitness that sweating together has been the one thing that's helped them get over the depression or anxiety they struggle with. No, that's, that's awesome. And I'm definitely going to link up that, uh, link up your podcast in the show notes for this one too, because it's a great resource for uh, my listeners as well. Um, and when I think back on CrossFit, like, yeah, I did get hurt, but it was also because of like my mentality that I had going into it. I, I was kind of in that old macho, like I need to be the biggest, strongest, fastest guy in the gym, yeah. uh, mentality. And that doesn't really end well for anyone. Uh, so, um, but like you said, I think it wasn't until I found CrossFit and my, 
community at district crossfit when i was living down in dc um that i actually got out of like my funk of like you know who is kevin without football and that was like six years after so um it took a while but um yeah it's well, it's a good point so it's it's so one of the things kevin is like so what you can ask yourself this i just had an interview with a fellow when we did this it was like what who is kevin outside of crossfit right who who are you like you're definitely more than just an athlete and more than just a crossfitter but those are good questions for all of us to ask ourselves who are we when you strip away work your physical nature all that stuff like who who are you uh it's a great question to ask who are you who matters in your life why does it matter what matters like those are like big questions right but good questions to ask but the first one is who are you minus all of the tags that we put on ourselves our identifications um and the other thing is it's okay to be want to be the biggest baddest strongest but it's also really important to be realistic and check in with you of like the best version of yourself. So um, I get really competitive, but I know that realistically the way at where I'm at in my life as a mom and entrepreneur, and I only can dedicate so much time to my training each day, but I'm going to dedicate it. It's just, is that going to make me the biggest, baddest, strongest? No, but it is going to make me the most healthy mother wife human right now in my life and so i think your goals just need to be match up with your reality of okay if, if that is really what you want if you want to go be a freaking navy seal do it but make sure your life supports that and your mindset supports that versus like wanting to do it and having all these other things going on and you can't commit i mean it, it takes a lot of commitment want to be a freaking full-blown crossfitter um you know like a lot of people i we come across this in the crossfit world they, they don't know what it takes to be as competitive if you want to make it to the games it's getting more and more and more competitive which is awesome but that just means you got to dedicate a lot of your time and do you have realistically do you have that time and the more realistic you can get with what you want uh the better and that doesn't mean shooting small that means shooting big. I just so happen to be in my life way more competitive in business than I am in sports at the moment. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's funny how how things shift like yeah. that. And I think what you just an or what you just talked about answered my last question because um, I heard you say that four percent of injuries are from trauma and ninety six percent of injuries are preventable. Um, and I was going to ask you what can athletes do to maximize their career longevity, but I think you kind of just answered it unless you have something to add. Um, yeah, no, I think that was the, that was pretty much it. It is true. Like 96% of the injuries out there that we see musculoskeletally, uh, like the common low back pain, knee pain, shoulder pain are preventable. Like you learning how to move well, right. Uh, learning how to recover well. Like there's so much you can do on your own. There's so much power. I mean, and I think there's so much power, there's so much power in that. Even if you have a brain injury right now, it's a permanent thing that you have, but you can still learn to habituate effectively and compensate in ways that are healthy for you. And so you don't further create or other orthopedic injuries because with these neurologic injuries can come orthopedic injuries. 
that can be preventable, right? Being smart. Um, the four percent, like the skiing accidents, the the the, the accident, like all the accidents that you just don't see coming. That's the injuries that usually create the the adapt this adaptive population. And um, the key is is to be as connected to your body and mind as possible and be a master of your condition. Uh, so being a master of your condition means that you know everything there is to know about your condition. Like you don't just wait for someone to tell you, like you research it and you find different ways, you know, different resources of research, not just one resource. And you ask the questions and you look at the best ways. And I've noticed, I've met, I've talked about some best ways to recover and train. Um, we need movement for life. So you're going to have to learn to move and you're going to have to be strong, but you also need to really know your body and be in tune with your mind to know when to say no and stop and recover. Um, and that's a process. This isn't like a quick fix here, but if you become a master of your condition and you learn everything there is to know and know the mind will F you up anyway. It's going to tell you no. It's going to be negative. It's going to tell you to be weaker. I'm just saying that out loud. Like that's not to offend anyone. I'm also talking, my mind does the same thing. Our minds are negative. Our minds will create weakness in our, in our body if we allow it. So the key is, is to listen to the physiological symptoms of fatigue um, and and be able to counter that with appropriate recovery and efficient training and being able to go past the comfort zone of, ah, oh, no, I'm just not good enough or I'm not strong enough yet or this isn't for me. Movement is for you, no matter who you are. So you just you just have to know your body enough and be able to push yourself in ways that are healthy. I love that. That's that's great. Everything that you said today is we're speaking the same language, and it's nice. it's awesome when you like meet someone who just like feel you feel like you get it. You're like, oh, thank God, I'm not the only one who yep. thinks this, this stuff. Um, so, where can listeners connect with you online? So they can check out. I mean, the Mighty Normal podcast is on most podcast platforms. Um, if you want to see, if you want to check out my course, go to drteresalarson.com. And you can find it there. It's uh, adaptive functional training. And then, um, if you want to learn more about my company here in San Diego, it's movement-rx.com. Great, and I'll link all that up in the show notes. And uh, Dr. Larson, thank you so much for t- taking the time to share your story on on the podcast and uh, to write your book and to do all the work that you do to uh, keep athletes safe and to help them find a new normal because I know that's not an easy thing for, for anyone. So uh, I commend you with all the work that you've done and for being vulnerable and making us all feel like we're, we're, a, we're, we're, just, as, we're just like everyone yep. else too. Um, it's, this is awesome. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, no problem, Kevin. Thank you for having me on.